Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. Uh, Henrietta, we are we're recording at the end of a very, very active week. I would say, for me, one of the most important weeks in recent history. This is definitely a watershed moment where shit's getting real. And I think just across the board, culturally, socially, even within our industry, I think people are ready to burn shit down and rebuild. Like people are exhausted and tired of asking nicely. And it really is about real change, like real systemic change across the board. And um, on one hand, it's really heartbreaking, devastating, disappointing, scary. But on the other hand, it's also so much needed and inspiring and exciting about what could come from it. It's a weird kind of confluence emotions i this week has been really challenging i'm I'm not gonna lie um for me i have to say my my overwhelming feeling has been one of feeling empowered feeling highly energized really recognizing this moment and i've been having a lot of dialogue i have to say i've been having a lot of dialogue with my community you know as this is not a subject that is new to me this is something i've been passionate about way prior to establishing this podcast i have been writing and speaking on this for more than 15 years since i've recognized that there is such a, a fracture in this in this industry and then so for me this is a point of jubilee not to say that our <laughs> the changes have arrived or anything of that kind, but the fact that that the entire culture is participating in this conversation now, and I think that this is the day of reckoning, or at least the moment of reckoning, and there's nowhere to hide. But I also think that it is up to us. We have such responsibility during this time, and if we squander it, it's on us. But I am energized to work. I'm energized to ally. I'm energized to look in all the crevices and all the areas that requires changes. And I am here to assist, to help, to lead in any way possible. Because if I wasn't prepared to do that, all essentially my professional life's work will, would have been you know, a, a farce. And so I, for me, for someone who has been focused on social and racial injustice uh, in his professional career, this is, this is the time, particularly in, in fashion, as is our focus um, primarily here in this uh, podcast, the time is now. So I feel in spite of all the, you know, let's call it carnage and chaos that's going on out there, I feel highly, highly energized to do some work right now, Henrietta. Absolutely. And my intention wasn't to lead with the negative. I think what's, what's really been exposed and disappointing has been just the extent to which we've been hoodwinked, you know, because I think against the backdrop of inclusion, diversity, empathy, all of that marketing, I think there was a real illusion of change. And I know that we have spoken to this uh, in our last episode with Imran. We spoke about this at length with Kimberly Jenkins, obviously the topic talking about the illusion of inclusion in fashion. But I think really just seeing, I think after Blackout Tuesday, just the number of people speaking out 
about what is actually happening at a sort of local and internal level has been quite frightful, if I'm honest, because I knew that fashion was really, in many ways, counter to the messages that we put out as an industry. And I know that from personal experience. But also, you know, you're always like, I'm one person and, you know, I'm here, I'm doing the work and we're all doing the work. So you, you kind of don't always have that bird's eye view about what's happening across the board. And then, you know, we're in these echo chambers. And even though you know that your friends and your former colleagues or your girlfriends or guy friends or, you know, acquaintances are experiencing similar experiences, I think on an industry-wide level, I've always been hopeful that a lot of the rhetoric that we put out has been truthful. And I think what's been revealed is that there is an insane amount of smokes and mirrors that has really been about driving superficial change and in no ways driving structural and systematic change. And I think that lack of intention, that lack of introspection and accountability and really wanting to do the hard work has left me disheartened, which is why, you know, when we wrote in the Business of Fashion op-ed, the time is no longer for asking our current leadership to do us a favour, to do us a solid. The time is to replace and reform. Like, that's it. And I think that's really what has been disheartening and and the latter of what I've just said is what has been energising because I think now we see a lot of Black, intelligent, experienced, creative, wonderful people speak up and actually show themselves to be really great leaders. So I think that's the thing that I'm really looking forward to. Well, um, I have to, I, I'm still reflecting. I'm definitely, I'm definitely here. I'm with you. But I'm still reflecting. And I think one of the things that's very startling right now for people, now that people are speaking out, is just how strong that code of silence has been in this industry. I, I, I know a lot, of, a lot of industries have code of silence. But I think in fashion, I think a lot of people are, <laughs> I mean, as much as we've been speaking about it for years, and, you know, certain leaders have made this their cause for a long period of time, I think that a lot of people wasn't hearing it. It wasn't on their doorstep. You know, it was something over there. And to be honest, they weren't looking in their immediate environment. Uh, They weren't looking at all. Their eyes were not open at all. And so what this, I think this has really shook so many people um, into attention and they are like, wait a minute, I wasn't aware of the magnitude. I mean, that could have been willful, but they weren't aware of the magnitude of the problem. They weren't aware that uh, Black people were in so much pain. And never mind going back to the, you know, the, the long history that brought us to this point. So I am so thrilled for those indelicate conversations mm-hmm. uh, to be taking place. And for it to be inclusive of, you know, a, a lot of white people have it. They're forced into this, whether they want to be or not. They're also participating in this and they're having a conversation that they've never had to have before. And so to me, this just signals uh, a real cracking of that nut open and to really, really, really analyze this content and to go deep about restructuring what's in there. So that, that to me, I'm just so... Um, I'm empowered by by the possibilities. And our friend, um, Kibway, who, you know, we we, we speak to quite a bit about these issues. I I have to um, give him credit for this phrase, but he calls it the age of responsibility. And I'm 
fully on board with that with that terming. And with that responsibly comes, you know, education, information download. There's just so much that's involved. The actual front lines of the work. So there's so much involved under that statement. And I, I, I'm, my hand is raised. I'm, I'm, I'm here to be responsible and I'm here to do my part. And I'm also here to engage my peers and my colleagues to do their part as well. That's the energy that I have taken from this week and I'm going to carry into this coming yeah, I think that's the general sentiment. People are not just holding problematic behavior accountable, they're holding people's complicitness and silence accountable. And I think that what's really interesting is I continue to talk about the parallels between what's happening on a societal level and what's happening in fashion. It really is about change at a local level. So if you don't like your governor or your mayor or your district attorney, like you have to vote them out because that's what is impacting what's happening on the streets, what's happening with your local police, what's happening with how money is spent in your state. And I think what's actually shifting is that mentality in fashion, interestingly enough, because I think that a lot of us were really looking at a wider sort of systematic change. We were looking at these governing bodies, these gatekeepers, the Stephen Colbs, the Anna Winters, the Eva Chen's, like, what are you doing for us? Are you part of the problem? Whereas now, I think we're all empowered on an individual level where people are like, I have 300 followers on my Instagram, but damn it, I'm going to use it to speak to those 300 people. Or I'm one person, but I'm going to talk to my manager. I'm going to tell my co-founder or my manager that they've really contributed to the systemic problems that have oppressed Black people and women and people in general. I'm going to actually act on an internal and local level. And I think that's really what's making the impact. That's where we're seeing that complete sort of shift in terms of accountability. That's what's the turning point here. Individuals are holding individuals accountable in our industry. And I think that's really how the paradigm is shifting because we're no longer asking for a kind of invisible change. You know, this idea that these people are going to hear us when we don't have direct access to them to, you know, DM Anna Winter <laughs> or, you know, take to your Instagram and hope that someone at Vogue like takes it to her or someone, that, you know, some conglomerate hears you. So I think that's what's really exciting and really energizing. And I think that's ultimately what's going to change. The fallout from Blackout Tuesday was such a shit show. I think we really understood how people are willing to trade off this energy and take your money. Whatever is relevant in fashion, people are willing to just trade on that energy regardless of what's actually happening internally um, and would rather sort of put public statements out rather than addressing their own internal injustices and inequities. So I think we're seeing that and people are fed up and pissed off and they're not having any of it, regardless whether you are an assistant or whether you are some big influencer or editor, like people are on check. And I, I do agree with that. That personal responsibility uh, has definitely shown during this time. But we cannot ignore, though, those governing bodies that you mentioned. They are still having a role in this climate as well. And um, there are some issues with that. I know, for example, with the CFDA that, that released a statement this week, and it was so, it just felt very hasty to me, where, you know, they said that they were establishing essentially like a, almost like a, a black talent agency where they corral talented Black people or professional Black people in this industry and help them to secure jobs. They've also adopted the Aurora James proposition for 15% shelf space. 
on major retailers' floors for Black-owned businesses and other initiatives like that. And I mentioned this CFDA initiative because, of course, everyone who, who wished to make change in this business where Black people are concerned, we welcome this. But it's a bit suspect when the institution, one of the institutes anyway, as the case in the CFDA, um, has really kept Black people out of the ranks, but yet they're hastily putting out solutions. <laughs> and, and for example, we, we were discussing that to some extent about, well, who is included in that decision-making? Is it, is Stephen Kolb and Tom Ford had signed uh, this initiative that they had put out there, but I have to discuss these entities that are moving very quickly to establish the new, the new paradigm in, in, this, in this whole change situation. <laughs> I, I'm very, very, very concerned that this will run away from us, and we still don't have a voice in this discussion at all. I mean, have you been have you been deeply looking at that component of of, oh, of this change? A hundred percent. And it's funny because on one hand, it's kind of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I think that haste is coming from a place of not wanting to do something too late. But I think the mm. overall criticism that I have for the CFDA is two things, right? It's twofold. One, I do feel like they're trying to trade off this energy because I think it's been very clear for a number of years that people aren't quite clear in the industry and outside the industry, what they do, like what their role in fashion is beyond the Vogue CFDA fund, right? And B, it's a little too little too late for me, if I'm honest, because we know for a fact that the CFDA have been presented with action-orientated solutions to try to reconcile the racial inequities in fashion. We know that that is a conversation that has attempted to be had for at least three years, right? The fact that they are trading Correct. off of this energy where they're like, oh shit, people are willing to burn down an industry and rebuild it. We need to get in on this. Like it's a little bit too little, too late. But an additional point is that it's really not up to two older white men, Tom Ford and Stephen Kolb, to then govern this change. I think there's something quite odd about the idea that they're going to govern and help place black people in these roles. Because I think what's been proven over the last few years, decades, is that this fashion body cannot manage the situation of racial inequity and injustice in our industry. Otherwise, if they were capable of doing so, they would have done so. And I think that's why this conversation of equity is really important, because when there's equity, when there's more voices at the table, the issues that impact those very people are permanent fixtures on the agenda. So to that point of a Tom Ford and a Stephen Kolb, these issues don't impact them. They have to be begged and begged and begged for years. There's a social you know, revolution, and then all of a sudden they're quick to make these really lackluster and quickly put together initiatives that all of a sudden are about Black people prospering in the fashion space. When we know that there have been conversations that have been had with them that have really fallen on deaf ears. In fact, the very people that presented these action-orientated solutions have actually, as a result, been sidelined. So I really take issue to this because I want to know how is this being staffed? How are decisions being made? Who else is in the conversation? Who else is in the room? And I don't want it to be a case of white decision makers talking to other white decision makers about where we as Black people go in this industry. That's not, that's not the revolution we're looking for. That's not the shift. But we also have to recognize, Henrietta, that at least the CFDA is a recognized body where there's leadership 
where there are, there's personnel. I think one of the issues in our community, as vocal as we are, and as we have other allies that are very vocal, I think it's very difficult for the community out there to identify where the leadership is. Um, you know, we, do, we, we definitely don't think that Tom Ford and, and Stephen Kolb are our diversity leaders, but I don't know that it, it's identifiable in our community either. And so if we're to have a, let's call it a regime change, and we're to uh, hand over the movement or at least share the movement with leaders from our community, who occupies those roles? Oh, who occupies that space? So I think that they're real question marks. And I, I also think the white establishment counts on this. I think they know how disparate our community is. I think they know the lack of unification that, that is in our community. And they count on that. So I think we also have, um, we have the charge to mobilize within our community and to set some sort of leadership structure or some sort of communication strategy that needs to be put out there. Because as Strong and there's so much fever to the voices that are expressing themselves right now, and I'm right there for it. But again, I can't even identify uh, okay. clear leadership in our ranks. So I'm looking at that as like, how are we going to move over the hump and and where that leadership is going to lie in the next chapter of this fight? Um, I <laughs> pretty wholeheartedly do not agree with you, Jason. Um, I think that that is not. A, that's just not an excuse in this age. I think just even in the last seven days alone, it's been pretty clear who the people that we can rely on to be a sound and trusted voice on many racial issues in fashion are. But also, I don't think that what the Black community needs is the same traditional hierarchical system that we rely on in these traditional fashion institutions. I don't think it's about mirroring the structures that we're trying to burn down. We are well aware that there are individuals who are smart, qualified, educated, well-versed, have done the work, have long histories, long resumes, are culturally attuned, are well-connected. Like, we know who those people are. They know who those people are. I think that this idea that, like, where's the leadership? Where's the consensus? I don't, I don't think we should be waiting to organise ourselves in that way. I think there are people that are ready to do the work. And I think Stephen Cole and Tom Ford know who those people are. Well, well to, to counter that, I think that we do have the talent in our ranks. Yes, we do. But I don't think that we've been communicating with each other as a community over this period of time. There has been voices that have emerged independently, but not appeared as a collective. So I think that that's more what I'm speaking towards. And in, in terms of Tom Ford and Stephen Kolb knowing who to go to, <laughs> I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't necessarily think that's true because I don't think, I don't think that we have put forth to them. You know, we have, and I, I, let me speak to your point about the traditional system. I'm not necessarily speaking about the traditional system. I think we can organize things any which way we want. It can be a lateral structure. It can be structured in so many different ways. So it doesn't actually have to follow a super hierarchical traditional system structure at all. But in, in terms of ownership, in terms of commitment, in terms of dedication, in terms of communication, that's what I'm speaking about. I do think that personalities should emerge from this era as to who's the spokespeople for this movement. I just think it's necessary. I think that if anyone can be a spokesperson for this, I think it, it really lessens the strength of the movement. But Henrietta, to that point, though, I'm not going to get hung up. I'm like full charge ahead. 
we'll work out that structure. We'll absolutely work on that structure. This is not about holding us back, but I, I, as a business owner, <laughs> I am, I, that, those are in the, ways that I, in the ways that I think. I think about structure and leadership. And I, I hear you. I hear you. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to parrot old outmoded systems, but I do think that there is a, there's value to, to people owning and leading efforts. As That's fair. I just don't buy that Tom Ford or Stephen Kolb or anyone at the CFDA, you know, couldn't call a friend to call a friend to recommend a friend. And But that's fine. I think, look, overall, I think that a lot of the issue is that fashion is really stumbling. I think there's no formula to this. It's a really complicated and layered challenge, right? And I think that the problem is that particularly with the rise of social media and performance marketing and the way that we've just formed as a fashion industry and like larger society, we've basically been following formulas in fashion. You know, we know what performs from an algorithm standpoint. We know what performs from an aesthetic standpoint. We know what performs from a messaging standpoint. You know, jumping on those formulaic bandwagons is very much what fashion has traded on for a number of years now. And we've seen it with the public apologies from influencers, from brands, you know, the black tiles with the white text and, you know, saying a lot of the same rhetoric and terminology about being held accountable. That formulaic mentality is largely what the problem is because we're not really breaking away from that thing where we can actually say, okay, what can we do from our perspective? This is what we can do versus what another organization can do. And I think when we get into this kind of like murky water of vague promises of action around like, we're going to make our hiring practices more equitable. It's like, well, what does that mean? Don't you have to be transparent about what they are right now so that we can hold you accountable for any level of change? Don't we have to really talk about what's going on in terms of toxic work environments so that we can figure out if actually you just need to treat all of your staff better? When we talk about equity, I'm less interested about bringing black people into what is an already toxic work environment because that is going to blow up your whole spot, right? So I think that this conversation is really more complicated than a lot of companies are giving it credit for. And I think that that individual thinking, as in my individual business, what can my valuable output be? What are my challenges that I need to reconcile? There needs to be some real introspection on an internal level before we put stuff out. And I think that this rush to be formulaic is largely the problem of fashion. And and it's weird because one of the main tenets of fashion is the idea of individuality. I think that inability to be an individual is largely what's kind of causing fashion as a whole to stumble. Well, I got to tell you, what has emerged from all of this, if we're to really keep our eyes on the issue, is that the emerging talk of Black-owned businesses. I, I love that all of a sudden, I don't know where some of them were hiding, but all of a sudden that information was there and, and that information was being passed on. Lists were, were, were quickly, quickly assembled and that information was put out there. So I thought it, it was a great opportunity, is a great opportunity uh, to spotlight Black-owned businesses. And, you know, I spoke uh, before about Aurora's suggestion about having a 15% shelf space for mm-hmm. Black-owned businesses as well. So I like that dialogue that emerged. I, li- I think that's a positive, positive. And if we stay on that message, like, okay, uh, for example, directly in, 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 in the fashion, let's call it the luxury lane, Net-a-Porte. You know, Net-a-Porte was called out as one of those brands that we want you to, to have a 15% representation, at least, of Black, uh, of black designers. 
something like that, for me, A, it's calling out the industry, but it's relying on Black talent, you know, on essentially a Black talent pipeline in order to, to fulfill those needs. So that's what I like about this. I like that the focus is truly, truly on Black creativity, on Black talent, on Black businesses. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of go deeper on this as well. I have to tell you, one of the most interesting um, things as well that has arrived from this period, and you know I've been on top of this, ultimately this is all about economic oppression for me. It certainly plays out in the fashion space in such a such a stunning and startling way. And Vikram at A Business of Fashion actually wrote this article this week. And I, I, in fact, I didn't know that this term had, had come out of this period. Eat the rich. I, you haven't heard it either. Well, I, I, I really discovered in this article, but I was like, oh my God, this absolutely makes sense to me. And um, let me read this quote. And if class barriers continue to harden and resentment continues to rise, the symbolic meaning of luxury brands will change. No longer badges of success, luxury goods could become symbols of oppression. That hit me like a, that hit me like a Mack truck because that's the kind of stuff that occupies my headspace. I think about like, don't we, don't we see this huge, huge economic disparity a, a, between, um, between black um, Black-owned businesses between Black people and essentially white people. And this is at the crux of it. But bringing it back squarely into the fashion space, speaking about luxury, I just love putting luxury brands on warning with a statement like this. I love this conclusion. No longer badges of success, luxury goods could become symbols of oppression. And in fact, they have been symbols of oppression. They just have not been viewed that way before. And so for me, if they don't clean up their act, so for me, the super rich and these luxury emporiums are also under fire. And if they don't clean up their act, see how these luxury institutions are so sacrosanct for our culture, for society. We revere these institutions. They're really honored. Imagine with the threat of those symbols changing, I think that is a stunning, stunning, stunning energy to put out there for these companies in this fashion space. So I'm looking at that kind of like really getting to the root and impacting the consciousness of our culture. And I think that's what this kind of movement is about. Eat the rich. I did not know that this was being chanted along with Black Lives Matters and everything else, yeah. but I could see something like this. Yeah, I, but I believe is the fact that the Black community and Black culture carry huge economic might, but yet are so economically oppressed, right? So it's like everything that's happening in fashion is against the backdrop of the fact that we are being disproportionately impacted by COVID deaths, by unemployment that's happening, by police brutality, any level of social injustice that's happening in our industry or outside of our industry. And on top of that, we have the most amount of visibility from a public-facing standpoint, we're in every ad, every every billboard, every shop floor, but yet there's like one, if any, in the decision-making corridors, just in the corporate power structures that make up our industry. So I think that now it's really about that idea of equity where it's like, okay, we have this power. I actually was reading about this new idea of Blackout Tuesday, which I think, I don't know if it's Blackout Tuesday, but it's the idea of, of blacking out, which is Black people do not spend your money for a day. 
we make up over $1.1 trillion of economic power in this country alone. And so see what happens when we stop spending our money. See how quickly all of a sudden our agenda will be pushed to the forefront. And I thought that that was really interesting because I think that this idea of our economic power is really becoming apparent. You see it on social media when people are like, damn, I spent money with you. I like really believed in what you were saying. And actually, I'm going to choose to not do that anymore. And I think that is also the turning point because if I was a CEO of any fashion company, I would be shook to my core because I think that is a business problem, right? It's not just an optics problem. It's not just a marketing problem. It's not just a social media shitstorm. It's becoming a business problem when you don't treat Black people equitably, when you don't treat them well, and when you take their dollars for granted. And we're seeing that across uh, the cultural landscape. We're seeing that across the political landscape. Now there's a whole thing about Democrats. Black people, for the most part, vote Democrats. And now there's this idea that Democrats are taking the black vote for granted. And I'm hearing a lot of, well, what have you done for me lately? So now in this next election, a big problem potentially is going to be voter depression and not even necessarily external forces getting involved or voter suppression. It's going to be voter depression because they're like, everyone's talking about how the Republicans aren't for black people. But look at where we are now. I don't know that the Democrats are for black people. And people are using the power of the vote to say, what can you do for me? And so I think that all across the board, Black people are being really empowered to actually use the tools in their arsenal. Black spending power, Black voting power, Black voices, their social media, words, their ability to disseminate information. And I think that's the turning point because it becomes not just a legislation problem, a policy problem, a business problem. Like It really is going to disrupt this culture of nothingness that have really gotten a lot of black people into this place. And it also expands beyond beyond black people in terms of people aligning themselves with brands that reflect their values. The stats are that two-thirds of shoppers' decisions mm-hmm. are based on the position that brand takes on issues. So to your point, I mean that that's huge. Never mind if black people really focus in and really identify where they drop their dollars. And if in fact it's aligned with their values, yes, it could have Serious, serious economic repercussions for the brand that they patronize, for sure. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. I think this is this puts the economic impact or potential economic impact squarely on the doorstep of these institutions, these fashion institutions. Radical transparency on all levels. Let's talk about it. Now people are (laughs) wanting to see the real work and the real transparency in order to take stock and account for what actually needs to happen. I think before it was this kind of blind trust that we can move forward to create equity and inclusion and transparency, whereas now people are like, take a picture of your board, of your leadership team, of your head office staff, and then we'll tell you what needs to be done. Don't tell me you're making actions to be better show me what you're doing and then we'll talk. And I think that is the difference. And I think I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for it. And I think that we're ready to, I mean, look, as a community of Black people, um, we're exhausted. But I think now the real work starts. And I think the idea of it being much more meaningful and impactful, I think will help to negate that exhaustion in order for us to move forward in a real way. No doubt. And I have to say, we should we should really speak about the op-ed that we wrote for Business of Fashion. We did mention it earlier, but we did write an op-ed on this issue for the Business of Fashion. And mm-hmm. I was 
so encouraged, Henrietta. I was so encouraged by the participation that that op-ed and also our, our podcast last week with Imran. I thought those two pieces in Britain, never mind, never mind the climate, of course, were uh, really huge in bringing yeah. allies out. I know you got tons of emails and texts as well as I did about this. And there's just so much goodwill, so much participation. And I love that immediately the work started with certain allies. People were ready to just dig in and started to do the work. I got so many reaching out as well from my white allies, really in earnest asking how they can participate, what they can do, and also wanting to make sure that they don't do, you know, they don't do anything that was offensive or not thought through or not authentic. So I felt, I feel that this is the time for all of those conversations. And, you know, it's not just led by people like us. I think many, 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 many people on their own volition have stepped up and are having, and in many cases, very uncomfortable discussion. So that has encouraged me tremendously. And we should commend ourselves, to be honest, for the work that we are doing and continue to do to keep this issue alive. This is not a bad um, session by yeah, any means, but we that. do have to recognize that we are. I think on the flip side, what has been, in a weird way, very energizing for me is hearing I mean, I, I'm not like a huge social media person, but my inbox was inundated. People shared the op-ed, tagged us in their stories, in their posts, and an equal number of uh, people had reached out to me by direct message or email or text to kind of talk about both stories of being complicit and those apologies that were like really difficult conversations to have, but also really heartbreaking conversations and messages and stories from Black people and people of colour whose careers, whose mental health, whose lives have been impacted Mm. by just the racism in fashion. It was actually really heartbreaking. And I think that while I have my own stories and my own accounts of things that I've experienced and obviously my colleagues and my friends and my family just seeing how pervasive it is from people I do not know, but felt the need to, you know, because I'm not a journalist, I'm not an influencer. I think that they recognized in me that I'm just someone who's worked in the industry for a really long time. I'm a peer and had something to say on this issue. I think a lot of people felt comfortable to reach out to me and say, I too have suffered this, or, you know, this is my experience in marketing. This is my experience in retail. This is my experience in design. The countless number of people who have been edged out of fashion. There was a lot of people who were like, yeah, I used to work in fashion, but it wasn't feasible or it wasn't sustainable or there was no upward mobility for me or I couldn't handle being the only black person. I couldn't handle being sidelined. I couldn't handle being the only one that was called problematic and difficult to work with and not promoted and ostracized and marginalized. And it's really heartbreaking because when we talk about the talent pool and where are those people that are going to fill in these gaps if if we're largely being driven out of the industry doesn't that just feed into the sort of white narrative of we hire the best people and the talent pool just isn't there so i think that in terms of employee retention and actually getting talent into the ranks okay. and into the power structures i think it is really about us all doing the work to make sure that we can get to a better place. Like I think it just is, and I feel much more emboldened to be a part of the team that does that work ongoing. And speaking of those talents that have been sidelined, those talents who have hit a glass ceiling, 
those talents who've been telling us their heart-breaking stories. I hope in this reckoning period, in this time of change, when you're seeking to hire people, when you're seeking to find real talent with experience in this business, the resumes of my friends and my colleagues and my peers for the last 25, 30 years in this business, I hope that those resumes will be dusted off. I hope that you'll be looking in those places. I have to say, they have not been looking in those areas thus far. The institutions, the hiring bodies, they have not been looking in those areas thus far. But I assure you, there is such rich talent that is in that pool of people that, as I said, I hope that they are uncovered in this period because their stories are heartbreaking and they are simply unfair. In many ways, they illustrate most saliently this, this whole racism history in fashion, certainly over the last two to three decades. And those people need to be spoken to and you need to hear their stories in the way that uh, this racial unrest is just left bare out there. And I hope, Henrietta, that going forward, we will be a part or continue to be a part of telling these talent stories in this business because their history and contribution and continued contribution uh, should not be erased and should be thought. 110%. And I think that a lot of business thinking has been around this idea that, or fact, idea fact, that the majority of Gen Z and the younger generation coming up under them and under them the majority of them are increasingly becoming more aware of the systemic problems and actually really wanting brands to stand by something that's meaningful, that really works to enact change. And I think that we forget about all of us. And I think what this time has really presented us with is the fact that the time is now. I think brands were using that Gen Z information to ramp up you know, so it's like we'll start in our marketing, then maybe we'll have like a black leader that we can put in trade press. But now I think people are like, no, no, it's now no. because actually we all want that. I'm 65 and I want that. Oh. I'm 40 and I want that. <laughs> okay. I'm a millennial and I want that. Okay. I'm Gen Z and I want that. And I think that it's not, it's no longer become like this like Gen Z era of wokeness. It really is in like all of us. And I think that is going to also contribute to this radical change that I'm hoping is on our doorstep. The radical change is here. It's here. I'm here for no- it. <laughs> I am so here for it. No justice, no peace. <laughs> And on that note. (laughs) That's such a good note to end on. I just, I mean, I've left this conversation feeling more optimistic, let's say that. Great, great. You know, optimism is good in these efforts, I think. So um, let's leave it on and off this optimistic note. Nice chatting to you, Henrietta. Bye-bye. Ciao. It's my time for something.